KYW Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I'm a sports guy, and I like sports, so I would turn the sound down to the TV and do games into a tape recorder. And then when games weren't on, I would put Channel 8 onto my TV because it was static and it sounded like crowd. And I would literally make up a game in my head. And when Greer went to Cunningham, jump shot 15 feet, good. And I'd turn up the snow and go. <laughs> and it sounded just like a crowd. So that was uh, the beginning of my career. And believe it or not, I've been able to take that and turn it into this. And our guest this week, the one and only Mark Zumoff, the television play-by-play voice of your Philadelphia 76ers on NBC Sports Philadelphia. Mark, thanks so much for coming in. Thank goodness there's only one Mark Zumoff. I have to tell you, the world could not stand anymore. You are, in addition to being a quarter century of the Sixers play-by-play guy, you're the first KYW alum we've had on the podcast here. I am. You know what? I'd say it's good to be back, but when I did the gig, it was back at Fifth and Market, and obviously that location has changed. But I love radio, I love being here, and thanks so much for having me. What did you do at KYW during uh, your time there? I was a freelancer, so that could have been any one of a number of different positions. I actually started there as a desk assistant, which is the lowest form of life, but people get hired from that, so I always recommend it to young people. And then I did a position that was called a correlator, where you sat in a little room and you did police checks and fire checks and traffic checks, and you kind of worked the phones Mm -hmm. until they would get a reporter on the scene. And then I did some freelance anchoring, and um, I was actually on behalf of KYW News Radio at the Meadowlands for the miracle of the Meadowlands when Herm Edwards ran back the Joe Pisarczyk fumble for a touchdown. One of the great moments in Eagles history, and I was there on behalf of 1060. Did you realize when you see that? Because I didn't know that. I mean, obviously, you know, this is incredible, but did you have a feeling that, like, I just saw history right in front of me? I, I think I was really too young then to appreciate it. I just remember going on and trying to explain what happened, and I know that I fumbled the report, so to speak. I fumbled the report badly. I just, I, I just remember not being of a good, sound mind and not having my facts organized and... Uh, well, it was it was that kind of a moment for sure. So that's very early in your career, KYW. Was broadcasting always the goal growing up? It pretty much was. I just remember um, AM radio back in the day, there were top 40 stations and disc jockeys used to uh, talk over the introduction of the song and they seemed to know when to shut up because then the lyrics would come in. So I was fascinated by that. I replicated that on my record player at home. And then that slowly morphed into, I'm a sports guy and I like sports, so I would turn the sound down to the TV and do games into a tape recorder. And then when games weren't on, I would put Channel 8 onto my TV because it was static and it sounded like crowd. And I would literally make up a game in my head. And when Greer went to Cunningham, jump shot 15 feet, good. And I'd turn up the snow and go, and it sounded just like a crowd. So that was uh, the beginning of my career. And believe it or not, I've been able to take that and turn it into this. Philadelphia born and bred Mayfair, correct? Yes, although that uh, really not my formative years, Matt. I was only there till uh, I think, first grade, October, my first grade year. And then I moved to the Northeast. And that's where I spent my formative years, literally a uh, 10-minute walking distance from Washington High School. You go to Temple, and is that where you really start the, the broadcasting, you know, start studying for in that direction? In terms of formal instruction, yes. 
though I will tell you that I grew up in a house where, um, you know, unfortunately, my father had a lot of different jobs. So my mother got nervous when I said to her, I'm going into broadcasting. That didn't sound like something that would be secure. So she made me promise her that I would um, go into the scrap iron and steel business. I worked my way at a scrap iron and steel yard through college at a scrap iron and steel yard. And there, were, there was a sales position open and I kind of migrated into that and um, found that I didn't like it as much as I like talking on TV so, or radio as the case may be. So I kind of got a job in radio and the rest is history after that. First job was at Trenton? Right. So I was at a station in Trenton, uh, WBUD, 1260 AM. They paid me $110 a week to rip and read the news. So back then for the uninitiated, uh, the news was delivered by way of a teletype, hence the background on KYW. And uh, there was literally a roll of paper, like a, like a toilet roll coming out, and they would print the news there, and you would literally rip it off and read it. Uh, but unfortunately, after one, two, three, four, five, six weeks, they had not issued me a paycheck. Well, they finally wrote me a paycheck for my $110 less taxes. And when I got it and I saw that I was actually getting paid to talk on the radio, that was it. I was, I was sucked in the business and I was never going back anywhere else. So you start, are you just purely news the first time? I mean, obviously you mentioned, uh, you know, you work here, you work in Trenton, were your first couple of years news before you made the complete push to sports? Yes, actually the first four or five years. And I had done a little bit of sports at KYW covering events like the Penn Relays and the occasional you know, Eagles practice right. or something like that. Uh, when I was in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, doing the news, there was a uh, broadcaster for Princeton University basketball football who got let go in the middle of the football season. So they were panicked. They needed an announcer. I'd practiced so many times on TV, I figured I was right, meaning turning the sound down right. on the TV at home. I figured I was ready. So I utilized um, that ability to say, hey, I know you're in a pinch. I know I, uh, you have a football game coming up. I can do this. And they said, fine, go ahead. You got the job. And that's how I started to morph into sportscasting. So what's, what are those first few broadcasts like, you know, when you're work doing it at home into a tape recorder? And now you're doing it for real. Are you right at home right away? And you're like, oh, boy, this is this is it. To an extent, I think, and sometimes, Matt, I even experienced that today, 40-plus years in the business, that I'm actually talking on TV. And the stuff that I did in the basement of my house in Northeast Philly passes for information, entertainment, et cetera. So I think there was a lot of, wow, I'm on the radio, I'm describing a football game, and I meant to be here, and I'm getting paid to do it, and this is a formalized presentation. I mean, it was, it was a little bit of, uh, I don't know, disbelief, I guess. But, um, you know, eventually I, I grew to realize that I was in a business, I was getting a paycheck, and um, I really started to enjoy the fact that I was having fun doing something that I could do naturally and getting paid for it. Now, your first TV experience, is it PRISM? So my first TV experience was PRISM, and um, what happened was uh, in the early 80s, I was on TV, so I'm lying. It wasn't. My first TV experience was uh, Fever Indoor Soccer. There's an indoor soccer team in Philadelphia, the Fever, and I did their games their final two years of existence. And the big takeaway from that was they gave me a one-game audition because I'd never done TV before. So I'm in Hartford, Connecticut, and I think that the management of Channel 17 then was afraid that I would 
do something uh, drastic or as a as a guy, you know, having an audition, who knows what I could say or do. Right. So they said to me, uh, your regular color analyst, who is a former player, is not going to be here. We we have someone else who's going to be with you for your audition. And they said, Harry Callis, the wow. late, great Harry Callis. So if I wasn't nervous before that, I mean, I'm saying to myself, oh, my goodness, now I'm going on TV and it's going to be with Harry Callis, one of my idols growing up in Philly. This is crazy. And Harry knew nothing about soccer, but my goodness, I, you know, he was a seasoned broadcaster. You could throw in any position or situation. So they had me audition with him. It seemed to go well. They hired me. And um, uh, a few of the games were on Prism those last few years. And that's how Prism found me and ended up hiring me for uh, some positions at their channel. Yeah. And early on with Prism, for people that aren't familiar, because uh, Prism was a, a cable local cable kind of like the local hbo at the time but had all the sports and movies and stuff like that but there was everything on prism and did you kind of run the gamut of of opportunities there during your time at prism in a sense the first thing they hired me to do was movie announcements you know coming up tonight on prism and you would proceed to read whatever copy they gave you and then i think they had the idea of having me replace jim gray uh he is a sports reporter of some repute he was the guy who hosted LeBron James' ill-fated uh, I'm Taking My Talents right. to South Beach show, among other things that he's done. So I ended up replacing him on six or half times, and um, you know, I, I was responsible for half times. I had an intern. I edited my own features. I, I helped to host the games, and that's how I started covering the Sixers. That was 82-83, the year they won the championship. What was that season like? It was, well, it was my first as a professional covering the NBA. So I'm wide-eyed from that aspect. And what am I seeing? I'm seeing really one of the most dominant teams in NBA history. There were teams, especially when they came to the spectrum, they were literally blown out at halftime. So the first few minutes of the third quarter, they'd lay down. And by mid towards the end of the third quarter, starters were getting fewer minutes. The reserves were coming in. Of course, they... Um, what I guess, what was it, 65 games, ended up winning the title that year, Dr. J's uh, first and only in the NBA. So, uh, And then, of course, the big highlight was uh, coming down Broad Street and just doing stand-ups with a cameraman, covering a parade, upwards of a million people, being there, hearing Julius Irving, Harold Katz, and other Sixers address uh, a sellout at Veterans Stadium, people who had migrated in from the parade route. Um, so, listen... As a Philadelphia sports fan, whether it's Eagles, Phillies, Sixers, Flyers, etc., I am uh, I'm just elated to be there. But I was there both as a fan and as a reporter, and I'll never forget it. So I guess what about eleven years doing uh, half times for the Sixers and and stuff and sidelines and stuff like that? Yeah, so uh, I think you're pretty close. The math takes us out to '94, and they uh, I I had done some games as the play-by-play announcer. Without going into too much detail, Prism had a companion sports channel called Sports Channel. I remember it, yep. And there were a handful of games there, and I had done some games, so they'd gotten to see and hear my work. And then the opening became uh, available to do all the games, and they hired me, and for some reason they haven't gotten rid of me. I've been there ever since. How much fun is doing the games, even after 25 years? Are they as much fun now as they were day one? They are. Uh, obviously the novelty of, wow, you know, kind of looking around, I'm doing 76ers basketball has worn off, but um, 
the great thing about the human experience is even though it's 82 games and there is some repetition, there are also some things that are different, uh, oftentimes things you haven't seen before. I enjoy going on television and thinking that after 40 plus years, there are certainly things that I can learn, that I can improve upon. Um, maybe a new phrase pops up, some innovation, uh, an interesting moment. And then there is, you know, game 53 when I'm sitting in Atlanta and I'm getting ready for uh, my on-camera open and I'm looking around saying, wow, here's a kid who grew up in Northeast Philly wanting to do this and now I'm the TV voice of the team I grew up rooting for. It's still a little bit surreal and I guess that's overall what makes it so great. How do you think over a quarter century, 25 years of doing the games, how have you grown as a broadcaster? Or I should say, how has Mark Zumoff the broadcaster now different than the Mark Zumoff that's, you know, in the 94-95 season? I think those of us, Matt, in this business always feel like we have something to prove. I think because you're a performer, um, you know, it's not like we sit at a desk and someone gives us an assignment or a task and says, okay, you need to complete it. And then I'm going to judge you by, you know, did you do the right thing? Did you get the right answers? Did you move this thing from point A to point B? We're artists. So, you know, we're free to choose words. We're free to choose emotion. We're free to choose uh, energy or lack thereof as we deliver whatever it is, whether it's stories or descriptions or what have you. And because it's so subjective, um, one of the banes of being an artist is the fact that people are judging you on something that's subjective. So there's, it's not necessarily a right or a wrong. It's do they like you or do they not like you? So there's always that challenge. And um, I think now um, that I've done it for 25 years, I'm a little less uptight about that because I'm closer to the end than the beginning. But somebody your age or a sportscaster who's going to take over for me eventually, you know, you're always going to feel that little bit of pressure as you go. Do they like me? Am I, you know, am, it is, um, it was my word choice bad or was my description bad or did I get facts wrong? That sort of thing. Um, I don't agonize about that as much anymore because I'm older, wiser, and closer to the end than the beginning. Was there a transition, and I say this as someone who's done a lot of play-by-play, but I've done virtually exclusively on radio, doing play-by-play. You mentioned the early years with doing the Princeton on radio. Doing it to, for TV, did you change your style? I mean, you have to adjust, but do you think you, how did you change it to when you start doing TV? The first thing you have to convince yourself of is that people could see what you're seeing. As you know, doing radio, you're doing it for blind people. So if someone is blind, you literally have to describe every possible nuance so as to paint the radio picture, as we say. So for TV, people can obviously see it. So I'm constantly asking myself, even today as an announcer, what can I do that can enhance what people can already see? Whether it's a timely fact, whether it's a story, whether it's a unique phrase, whether it's banner with my analyst, whether it's leading into graphics or video pieces or a sideline person, that sort of thing. Um, We do things, and I'm the traffic cop for a presentation that is designed essentially to, to enhance what people can already see. And so that's pretty much your mindset. Um, yes, I did have to adjust to that. I did have to eventually morph into that. I don't really think it took that long. I think I got it pretty quick. But that is essentially the difference between what you do and what I do. You mentioned Banner with the analyst. 
I've been lucky when I've done play by play that I've my the chemistry's been pretty instant with just about everybody I've worked with. Do you find the same thing or do you find it's kind of a dance at first to finding your pace with with new people because you haven't had a ton of different partners but you have had over the years some some different guys come through i have a huge ego it's almost impossible for anybody to get along <laughs> to get along with me um what i try to do is in some form or fashion get to know someone even if it's just a meal or a cup of coffee away from the mic so i've had partners literally where, you know, I've just met them an hour before we go on. So in some way, shape, or form, I try to engage them, uh, get a sense of their personality, their likes, their dislikes, some stories, how they view a particular sport, how they're viewing the event that we're doing that night. And then, of course, with Ala or with Steve Mix or pretty much anyone of the color analysts that I've had, um, it's like anything else. You spend enough time together, you develop chemistry that way. And with Al and I, we've been on the air so much, or in the case of Steve Mix, we were on the air for 13 years. You know, it's a cliche, but it's true. It's the old pair of slippers. It's Mm -hmm. the the pair of jeans. There's a level of comfort that you just slip into, and it's certainly been the case with Al Abdelnabi for sure. Time now to take a break. We will have more of our conversation with Mark Zumoff right after this. This is One on One. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One on One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. And we're back here on One on One, continuing our conversation with the one and only Mark Zumoff. When you look back at your years doing Sixers, what are some of the games that if you're like kind of cataloging your career doing Sixers games that rush right to the front for you? I pretty much flash back to the Iverson years. Um, lately, I would say the debuts of Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons because they're going to have Hall of Fame careers and it was exciting knowing that I was there for the first game. But as I go back to Iverson, there's one play in particular, and there's one game in particular that I remember. 98-99 was the lockout year, so we played only 50 games. It was great. It was like a college season. And people were excited from that aspect and the fact that the Sixers were going to finish above 500 for the first time in nine years. They actually had a team, and um, Allen Iverson was becoming a star. And um, that year was... uh, the Sixers were a six seed in the playoffs. Orlando was a three seed. They faced each other in the first round. They split the first two games in Orlando. Game three at what was then, I guess, first Union Center was the um, um, the first home playoff game since whatever it was. It was eight years previous. And uh, Allen, uh, Iverson was out of his mind. Uh, he had an NBA record that still stands. He had 10 steals, so you can only imagine how he was all over the court. Um, I don't think anyone in the place sat down from tip-off to buzzer. It was that kind of night. And uh, I remember Matt Geiger being in front of the Orlando bench and almost getting into a fight with a late Chuck Daly. I mean, it was just a wild scene. And the Sixers ended up winning. So that game has always stuck out for me. And then there was a play that year where um, Iverson was hounding Mark Jackson in the backcourt. I think the Sixers were on national TV, so I was just watching. Oh, no, I was doing the game. And... um, he hounded him all over the floor, and the fans were just so into the fact that Iverson was all over Mark Jackson. 
eventually stole the ball from him in a key situation, fed Aaron McKee in the corner. McKee hits a three, timeout Pacers, and uh, the building never sounded louder. It was great. So let's go through, you know, when you're prepping, how do you prep for each game? Do you have like a routine as far as how you put your notes together, stuff like that? So I was prepping before I got here, and I'll be prepping afterwards. In other words, you're always prepping. There's a constant state of awareness as it relates to the NBA, the Sixers, and the news. So whether it's going to a workout of NBA potential NBA draftees, a practice, a game, reading uh, viable websites, going to places where I can do research, you're always kind of doing homework. And then the day of the game can be any kind of a mix. Sometimes I'll go to a shoot-around, which is uh, – a day of game brief practice where the team will strategize on the opponent that night and that kind of thing. And then it's literally four or five hours of taking whatever information I glean from talking to players, talking to coaches, reliable websites, stuff that's supplied by the NBA or the teams, and I've designed an Excel spreadsheet. And I often say it's like uh, when you're a student in college or high school and you have pages of notes, and then you want to condense them into three-by-five cards with the most important information, the act of taking that and building the three-by-five cards is the same as me taking my information and putting it on an Excel spreadsheet. Um, it helps me to put it in my mm-hmm. brain and into my frontal lobe. And then the sheet is there in case I need to refer to it during the game, and it's got all kinds of stats and anecdotes and whatnot. And you're obviously so well-known for the Sixers, but you've also done some union here over the, the last few years. What's that experience been like? And have you been able to, to lean a little bit on your, your soccer days from the, the old MISL? I guess to a, to a small extent. I mean, it's a much different game, the right. outdoor game. And I, I'm a union season ticket holder. I've become fascinated by the game. And uh, I don't do the games anymore. Dave Leno now is doing some backup work with the J.P. Delacamera. He's a great young broadcaster, and I've happily stepped aside for him. But in terms of um, professional accomplishments, it was a great way for me to get into a game that I'm intrigued by. So I had to prepare in a way that I had to understand strategy and you know X's and O's and trends and whatever, much the way I do for a, um, a 76ers game. I enjoyed it from that perspective, and now I'm just a season ticket holder who goes to the games and enjoys them from that perspective. One of the things that you're known for, I think any Sixer fan knows some of the some of the phrases you come garbage into gold, uh, locking windows and doors. Is there an origin to those, or were they just a couple of things you said a couple times? You got a little feedback, and it just kind of became part of the lexicon of one of your broadcasts. I think I've found that I'm someone who is interested in doing two things, not repeating myself and also trying to create things that are unique to me and nobody else. So uh, garbage into gold. One day, George Lynch, speaking of the Iverson years, uh, took an offensive rebound and put it back in and garbage into gold just popped into my head. Uh, you know, some of the other stuff. What was the other phrase that you mentioned? Locking all windows Locking and all doors. Windows and doors. Um, I don't know where that came from either, and I don't know when I said it, like what the first moment was. But, um, you know, some of the stuff sticks. Some of it doesn't. I, I, I do get feedback, and now with Twitter, you get tons of feedback, whether you want it or not. Um, 
So I find that people enjoy it. People come up to me in the street and they say it. So that's to me is the best kind of feedback. So uh, now I've tried to make it. Um, I've, I will use them on occasion, but I, I don't want them to become a cliche. I don't mm-hmm. want to become a cliche. So I, I use them sparingly. And you mentioned social media overall. The social media experience. Do you think it's been a a good thing for the fan experience or a net negative? It's like anything else. It's what it can be and what it actually is. So what it can be is a tremendous information resource. So part of the reason why I have a Twitter account, aside from my corporate obligations, is it's a tremendous source of news. But it's up to you as an individual, I think, to use that information responsibly and make sure that you're getting news from reliable sources and not people who are doing it part time or going off, you know, half informed, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of drivel out there. There's a ton of drivel. There's a ton of irresponsibility. We've become we've begun to emphasize speed and um as short a description as possible, as opposed to getting it right, getting the details, that kind of thing. I, I think journalism is is at a precarious state right now. I don't mean to go off and philosophize, but I think um, because we emphasize this phone so much, it has uh, it's put a tarnish on what it is that I I know that I did earlier in my career, what I grew up with, and uh, not only is it uh, the responsibility I think of the user to discern what's right and what isn't. But we as broadcasters and, and entities and, and media professionals and corporations need to take ownership and use it the way it needs to be used. So what is your favorite part of what you do? Is it the, the opportunity to, to talk to the players? Is it the game itself? You know, if you had to kind of put something at the top of the, the, the thing that, you most enjoy, what would it be? So I don't know how you feel about this because you do the same thing as I do, only it's on the radio and um, you you anchor sportscasts and what have you. But to me, the element of being live is the greatest thing in the universe to me, aside from the love I have for my family and my wife. But when you're live, and I'm and I'm trying to explain to people who've never done it or experienced it or think they might be panic-stricken, your level of concentration is so high that it's literally a buzz mm-hmm. because you are so fixated that uh, if you had a you know a, f- a fight with your best friend, if you had a fender bender on the way into work, uh, you know you work woke up on the wrong side of the bed, you had a headache, what have you. Everything is blocked out because your level of concentration has to be so high you really can't think of anything else. And um, when I get off the air, it takes me like literally an hour to 90 minutes to sort of come down from all of that. But while you're doing it, um, I I really do relish the challenge. Now, with that come the consequences. I, I can't tell you how many stupid things I've said, mistakes I've made, things where I've said it and you're like, oh. I would love to be able to take that back. And you can't. So you sort of pray that no one really heard it. And the real professional thing to do, and and this is the mark of a good broadcaster, is keep going. Right. And don't, you know, just because damage control is only going to draw attention to it, unless it's egregious or the fact is so wrong that that you really have to correct it. So I would say of all the things I do and 
99.9% of it is great. Uh, the aspect of being live is my favorite. So one of the things with play-by-play, like I asked you what's the favorite part, if I had to reverse engineer it for me, the travel grinds on me. How is the travel for you over the course of this? Because, you know, it's pretty pretty intense, I would think, at certain points. One thing that I get to do that you don't, you travel like everyone else travels, right. whether you're on a bus, whether you're on a commercial flight, that sort of thing. But in my case, we have a charter aircraft. In fact, when we go to New York, they literally charter a train. And they, they rent out a three-car train, and it doesn't stop for anybody. It just takes us to and from New York. So the beauty of that is uh, we have some great logistics folks who arrange for the charter, uh, arrange for the hotels, uh, the transportation between airport and hotel or hotel and arena or whatnot. So all I have to do is pretty much show up on time. So it is an extraordinary amount of travel, I won't lie. It's between forty and 50,000 air miles a year. But um, the Sixers, NBC Sports Philly, they, they do everything first class. I'm fortunate from, from that perspective. We do, especially on West Coast trips, get a free day in a city. So that's an opportunity to do something fun. There is a bit of a grind to it. But listen, I have one of the best gigs in America. So if I'm to sit here and complain about flying on a charter aircraft with the 76ers <laughs> and staying at a five-star hotel, just shoot me and put me out the pasture. I would never do that. And you got a chance to do the Olympics in 2016, didn't you? I did. So I was fortunate enough to be selected to broadcast women's basketball. And Ann Myers-Drysdale, the great Hall of Famer, was my color analyst, and now she's become my big sister. And we went to Rio. You're there for a week. And then there's two weeks' worth of competition. Gino Oriema was great. Uh, He's not the head coach anymore, um, but he was great just in terms of accommodating me because while I think I know basketball, I knew nothing about the women's game. So I spent about a month researching. And then, Matt, it was really interesting. And by the way, you're working so much. We had very little time to see Rio or really spend any time doing anything fun. But um, it's interesting to get a peek behind the curtain because as you view it with all its grandeur, through the filter of a network TV presentation, there's one perspective. And then the other is like anything else. You're seeing, um, you know, how they, for example, allow the press to mix with athletes. Or um, we were told there was no replay in, in games, no replay like they have in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing we know, a referee is running to the scorer's table to to look at a replay on a call that, that he or she was questioning. So... Um, it's not all uh, it's cracked up to be in terms of the smoothness of the presentation. There are some idiosyncrasies and some things that um, certainly aren't presented by network TV when you see the events. But my goodness, what an unbelievable thrill and what a great thing it was to be among people from dozens and dozens of nations to see them uh, compete in various events. It was something I'll never forget, and I'm really fortunate to have done it. And the way your career has played out, you've basically been Philadelphia area your entire career. Like, when you were younger, was that the plan? I don't want to say if that's the plan, but were you like, I'd really like to stay here if possible? Were there times where you were open or were there opportunities maybe when you were younger to to go other places? Or did you always want to stay relatively close to home? This is a, this is, my whole life's been a dream sequence. 
And I am doing exactly what I wanted to do when I was a kid. And I, I imagine it's a fairly small percentage of people who could say that. So, you know, obviously with the Olympics and some Turner assignments, the odd Turner assignment, I've done some national stuff. But I, I like, you know, when you're the voice of a team, you are there viewing the game through the perspective of fans. And I'm a fan. So I like that as opposed to showing up and doing a game for two teams that I may be interested in watching, but I don't have an emotional mm-hmm. connection. So to that end, I like the emotional connection, and I wouldn't change it for anything. You have a – and I know you're very big in helping the next generation of sportscasters. Uh, and as we're talking here, you've got an event coming up to uh, – for uh, for youngsters in the area, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, the seminar you got. I think it's June 29th. That's correct. So I've always done broadcast coaching, and I do it mostly because I well, there's an there's an old saying when one teaches to learn. So I love the aspect of teaching because it reminds me of things I forgot. Sometimes I th- say things that are a revelation to me. So I've I, I've done I've been doing it for fifteen or twenty years. So now it's I'm going to condense this into a one day eight hour seminar. So for high school kids, college kids, people still in the business, people are in their fifties who want always wanted to go into the business. There are still opportunities. What I do is, uh, or what I'm going to do is this seminar. So it'll be pretty much a thirty five thousand foot view of the business. Um, I will talk on specific topics. I have some great speakers coming in. Uh, Michael Barkant, Serena Winters, uh, Sean Alexiak, who's my boss at NBC Sports Philadelphia. Um, Zach Gelb is a young talk show host. Daryl Reynolds, Reynolds, a former Villanova player, who will give the athletes uh, perspective. Adam Lefko, who is a um, terrific talent with Bleacher Report. Natalie Eganoff, who uh, who does sports radio in Philadelphia as well. She'll give the women's point of view. So uh, all that's going to combine for plus lunch. We'll throw in lunch as well. It's a, it's a full eight hours. And then uh, not only will you meet people, but I think it'll give you a great starting point for your career. It'll give you some focus, and you'll know where to hopefully launch it from there. And if someone's interested, what should they do? If they're interested, probably the easiest thing is just to find me on Twitter. And there's a pinned tweet with uh, the link to the website. And it's at the JCC in South Jersey, which is in uh, Cherry Hill, Voorhees area. So, um, you know, for those who are planning, registration starts at 8 and... Our seminar starts at 9. Mark Zumal, thanks so much for stopping by. Pleasure. Anytime. And that's it for this week's show. One-on-one is a sports podcast from KYW News Radio. If you like the show and want to help us out, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. And you can help more people find out about the podcast by finding the show on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at one-on-one pod, and you can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon1060. Thanks once again to Mark Zumoff for joining us this week, and you can find Mark on Twitter at Mark Zumoff. My name is Matt Leon. Come back next week for another good conversation with someone you should know more about.